This is Circulating Ideas. I'm Troy Swanson, sitting in for Steve Thomas. My guest today is Jeremy Shermack. Jeremy holds a PhD in journalism from the University of Texas at Austin. He is currently a professor of journalism at Orange Coast College in Costa Mesa, California. He has written on a range of topics, including sports journalism, weather and climate reporting, political communications, and motivated reasoning. Circulating Ideas is made possible by listeners just like you. Find out how you can support the show at circulatingideas.com slash support. Jeremy, welcome back to the show. It's good to have you back on. Good to be here, albeit from afar, but it's uh, it's nice to be back on. Thanks for having me. Like everything else, it's, we're all online, right? Um, you know, I've had several years of ongoing conversations um, about fake news, and I've been happy to be a guest host on this podcast to talk about that, fake news and misinformation. You actually were with me in 2017 in one of our early conversations, so I thought with the upcoming election, uh, this would be a good time to have you back, to have you back. So thank you for doing this. Thank you. Yeah. Well, to get us started, I guess, um, right off the bat, I'd like to ask, you know, what, what, from your opinion, what's the state of journalism at the end of the, of Trump's first term? And, um, do you think journalism's credibility has suffered? It's in a, it, it, yeah, I've been pondering this question since you talked to me last week about the podcast and I, I still don't know if I have a great answer to it. And one of the reasons why is because everything is so incredibly fractured. And I feel like we may have talked about this fracture when we, we did this way back in 2017. And my, my hope then was that it would get better. My fear was that it would get worse. The reality in 2020 is my fear. It was my fear is that it has gotten worse and that we have been more fractured than ever before. And part of that is because not only are we fractured from a, a ideological and, you know, even, a, even, um, you know, civility, our civility is fractured and just our ability to talk to one another is fractured, but the media model itself is fractured. And that has certainly been exacerbated this year by COVID and by the economic impact. And also not only the economic impact, but this sort of really ridiculous fight over truth that's occurring in the midst of this pandemic. And so what was already fractured, you know, it's almost like the glass broke and then someone came in and just hit the glass with another hammer a few hundred times and kept breaking it. So the state of journalism right now is um, it's it's hectic and it's it's confusing. And it's I feel like a lot of journalists are running scared because, it, you know, I, I would love to paint a rosier picture, but I just think that's the reality. And now I, I don't think we're quite ready or I don't say ready. I don't think we're quite understanding of just how divisive this election will be and how much that will be yet another one of those sort of hammers falling on this broken glass that is journalism. Yeah. Well, and I think that's a good point. And I think, you know, you know, for librarians, if we are interested in the information world, I think monitoring the health of journalism is important for us. And if we say that we're information professionals thinking about where our, you know, cousins in journalism, <laughs> uh, yeah. or maybe comrades in the fight, perhaps, um, where mm -hmm. they are, I think is is um, good. So, you know, let me ask you, are, how are you seeing the difference in covering the election from 2016 um, to 2020? Yeah, you know, this is this, there were a lot of lessons to learn from 2016. And 
the fear is, and I think this is a fear that is across all of journalism and media, is did we learn those lessons and what lessons were those? And I think in some ways we have, in some ways we haven't. Going into this year, pre-pandemic, I felt like there were some things that maybe we were repeating from 2016, where we were you know, in our in our quest to be objective and our well, in our quest to be balanced is probably the better word. We were amplifying voices that weren't telling the truth and were distorting reality. And in many ways, that's still happening. I'm not saying that has changed, but I think the shift in coverage now. You know, it used to be we had the you know the horse race coverage, who's winning, who's ahead. You know, versus you know the you know horse race versus policy, and what are the issues now? And I've noticed this particularly over the last few days since um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has passed, and they're talking now about a replacement, uh, not a replacement, I hate using that word, but, but you know, a new justice coming in and um, how that may affect the election if this is contested. And it seems like in every kind of scenario it will be contested. It shifted the coverage even more so into more about the logistics of the election. Think about how much you've heard, you know, I, I was talking to my, my friend the other day and I said, how much have you heard about either one of these candidates' tax plans? You know, there was an age in political coverage and presidential campaign coverage where you would have entire news segments, news hours dedicated to tax plans. We haven't talked about that. Right. It's either been pandemic or it's more about the logistics of it. So I think if because of the pandemic and because of all the concerns about voting and the push for voter registration and voter and, you know, the, the, um, the social action that has been taken the past several months, it's, it's going to be comparing apples to oranges, I think, in many ways when comparing coverage to 20, 2020 to 2016. It's just such a vastly different environment. It's like you try to fight the last war, but you're in the midst of a new war that's totally totally different. Exactly. Exactly. You've touched on this a little bit, but how do you see COVID impacting coverage? It's, um, it's massive. I I, I think it's hard to, you cannot overstate it in my, in my personal opinion. You know, there's, there's obviously the, the coverage that, that is important to the public, you know, getting out these health messages, getting out the information that is necessary um, to help the public. That's, that's the charge of journalism, right, is to inform the public. And, and so there's that side of it, but then journalists are also fighting this fight against the, the misinformation and the disinformation out there, and that's a whole other battle that tends to disrupt what is really important, and that is getting the good information that can help the public out there. Um, and, and in another sense, too, and I'm sure we'll come back to that, but in another sense, too, you know, Journalists just in practice, you know, we can't do the old pound the pavement sort of reporting. You can't really go door to door anymore, you know, that kind of thing where we're getting out in the actual field. They're certainly still out there, but it comes with a much higher risk. You know, teaching student journalists, I tell them first and foremost, I don't want to put you ever in harm's way, you know, and and journalists put themselves in harm's way all the time. I just can't do that to my students, Um, but it makes it really tough for them to report. And, you know, I, I say it's kind of at your own risk, but I don't want to put you in that spot. So it's had a dr- dramatic impact both on content and on practice. Well, you touched on the misinformation and disinformation. You know, it's 
it's interesting when I started, you know, doing these interviews, I kind of used the, the term fake news to lump everything together. And I think we've learned over um, the last four years for sure um, a little bit more nuance in, in using the terms misinformation and disinformation. Um, mm-hmm. in, in some ways, uh, the president has kind of hijacked the fake news term as an attack on media itself, right? Pointing at media and calling calling them fake news. You know, how has the views within like professional journalism, the, the views of um, on misinformation, disinformation, how has that changed and how are we evolving to address some of that? We're learning more about it. I think in a way, uh, journalists, journalism scholars, journalism educators have kind of had a, a media literacy uh, trial by fire of their own over the past few years. And something that I've really noticed that has happened, and, and I've noticed this particularly when I talk to my students, is, you know, we have the terms misinformation and disinformation, and something that's problematic is probably outside of our circles, outside of my journalism circle and outside of the library circle, and then wherever we meet in the middle of the Venn diagram, those use, those words are, those terms are used a lot, and we understand them for the most part, understand what they mean, but beyond that, they are not used that much. And I have found when I talk to my students about them, when I say what's misinformation, what's disinformation, they can't tell the two apart. And it's not because they're not bright, they're brilliant. It's, it's, there's just a lot out there. Um, you know, and so I try to tell them misinformation, think mistake, right? It's that, you know, it's misinformation that maybe, you know, your uncle's sharing and he thinks he's helping you, but it's wrong. You know, and then, of course, the disinformation, which is the more, you know, devious and, you know, dangerous side of it, where it's actively trying to confuse people. One of the things you mentioned fake news and something that I've been very, very bothered by in regards to fake news is, yes, the term has been absolutely hijacked. Um, if we're putting it in the misinformation and disinformation context, it could mean both. But what's happening, and I'm seeing a lot with my students, when I talk to my students in a introduction to mass communications class, even my news writing class, um, fake news has almost become kind of an idiom where it's, it's, they're lumping everything together, kind of like the president is, they're lumping everything together uh, that they either think is, is not good news or they think is bias, and it's even used as a joke. You know, like, um, oh, I, you know, I, I don't, I love, I love the pandemic. That's fake news, you know, or something like that. It, it's, so it, it's, it's, it's become, it's too familiar and too much part of our vernacular and our discussion in this country. People say it and throw it around so much, not knowing just how dangerous it is. And what you're seeing, I think, is, is on these kind of extremes. You know, where, where you have people, you can look at it left, right. You can look at people who are, you know, scholars, non-scholars and whatever. There's an extremes where these misinformation, disinformation is being used. But I think sometimes we forget. And I say we as in journalists, journalism educators, journalism scholars forget there is a vast sea of people in the middle, probably the majority of the country who either don't care or have so little faith in any system that they completely disregard the news as anything but fake. Right. And that to me, that, 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 that middle ground, that sort of meh that they do, you know, the shrug of the shoulders, that's, that's grown 
far too much in the last four years. Even though we see more polarized, that kind of people are just very dismissive now. They almost want to say, "This is too much. I can't figure out what's real, what's not. I don't like the fighting. I'm out." And that is that's dangerous. I don't have the patience to figure it out, so I'm not going to mess with it. So step away. One hundred percent. And that I mean that goes back to that credibility issue, right? And um, yeah, there's so much. There's so much there. You know, one of my interests, of course, is the connection. You know, I've always thought information is personal and that the connection between um, identity and how you interpret the world and then how you bring in that information, um, I think has just been made so much, you know, in a, it's been defined for us in a stark kind of way. And, yeah. and I think you're right. Those people in the middle that just throw up their hands and say, I don't trust any of it. I think that's a big hit that all of us take. And in some ways, I think libraries have been lucky that in public opinion, we still um, we still hold a, a fairly high, uh, you know, high amount of support from the public. Um, mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. that I, I think it's a lesson for us that, you know, it's easy to be undermined and become a target for some of this. And, and I think, sure. you know, journalists have been held in high esteem from the Watergate days on. Right. And now it's they're starting to get. Superman was a journalist for for particular reasons, right? The, exactly. That's why we had Clark Kent because he's the person you always trust. He's out to solve the solve the make the world better. And exactly. Now, now uh, the reputation suffered. And I want to I want to touch on what you mentioned about information and being personal and new. You know, and, and it, it speaks to news. This summer, I taught a class, um, uh, Introduction to Mass Communication, Mass Communication in Society class at Cal State Fullerton up the road here, and I had students in that class many of which were communications majors, the majority of which, and uh, great students, very thoughtful. We had wonderful conversations. A lot of, many of the students, though, in the discussions would say, oh, you know, that's all fake news, or I, you know, when I watched the TV the other day, they're so biased, I don't want to, I don't want to watch them anymore. And what I began to realize is that these broad statements are what are becoming so dangerous. So I would push back and I would say, well, what were you watching? Send me a video link to what you were watching and tell me if tell me what was fake about it. And it occurred to me that when they took a step back and really thought about, wait a minute, what was I watching? And, and then watched it again and realized actually there wasn't something fake on it. But because it had a particular cable company's name stamp on it, and you have this other, these other feelings, you know, that are becoming more personal on it. It was just assumed to be fake, you know. And I had to remind them constantly: there's a lot of really, really good journalism being done these days. The percentage of journalism that is fake is very small, you know. If we're talking about reputable sources, are there problems? Sure. I'm not going to sit here and rah rah blindly cheerlead journalism, right? The the perception has gotten exponentially more negative in the last four years it's um it's discouraging quite frankly it really is yeah yeah it is and i i think you know from the broad kind of picture i think this is where libraries public education um journalism you know we we kind of there's this enlightenment idea that's been with us for hundreds of years that the idea is you 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 can debate ideas and hopefully the strongest ideas rise to the top right but Mm -hmm. To do that, you have to have some kind of trust in sh- and shared ideas and belief in those institutions. And so when the institutions get undermined, um, I, I do worry about where what that leaves us with as a society. And so, 
Um, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, well, and, and speaking of some of that, let's shift just a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. I do worry, too, about local news because I feel like that's been really on life support. And especially in the last two decades, the you know, we've seen the collapse of local news um, in a major way. Uh, many places in closing down entirely. Um, and even even some online sources like BuzzFeed are still struggling um, to turn a profit. And I guess I just wanted to ask, like, wh- where are we in the ongoing search um, for a, a business model <laughs> for journalism that's sustainable? I mean, is it? Are we finding one? Is it moving forward? Is it consolidations? Um, you know, where are we? You know, in regards to business model, and I think to look, you know, in particular at a, at a local news model, local news business model, particularly because you know that's that's really where this fight is, and it, and it's also where. I think we can make the most make up the most ground as far as returning some of that trust to our audience um, through through those local news um, avenues. But as far as the business model goes, um, I keep coming back to it, but it's just what it is. the The pandemic has really highlighted, you know, if it wasn't highlighted already, uh, the major flaws in the in the local business models. Uh, in the sense that, you know, for example, you know, small business, I'm sorry, um, local news models, local news business models rely on advertising from small businesses. Small businesses go downhill after COVID. Uh, that advertising drops off. Local news goes downhill with it, you know, and, and the same can be said, you know, for subscription uh, services. Income falls. You're going to scrap what you have to in order to survive. That's going to affect, you know, um, subscription services, particularly news. Now, you know, Netflix and Hulu and Disney Plus, they've had a heyday, right? So subscriptions still can be done, but in a, in a, and, and you know, the New York Times has done quite well still, but in a, in, in the moment though, where local news subscriptions were falling anyway, this certainly didn't help and likely very much hurt. Um, so, so one thing the pandemic, I think, has done is kind of created some more it kind of made it apparent that there needs to be more inter- inter- uh, innovation, excuse me, for these um, local news business models. So, you know, you mentioned, um, I think you mentioned talking about like the nonprofit model, you know, that's certainly out there. Uh, people need to remember that, you know, nonprofit is merely a tax exemption and not necessarily, hey, we're going to survive. You know, <laughs> you still have to produce some kind of revenue. Uh, it helps, certainly. Um there's been some models I think are really interesting. One, uh, there's a couple of newspapers in Ohio, um, just off the top of my head, they're actually kind of using a, it's almost like a co-op, like a, a cooperative uh, approach where, you know, the employees own a share of the publication. Uh, you, you know, the public can buy a share of the publication. Uh, and that can be something that can work. So there's innovation out there. I, I still think there's hope. You know, I'm probably maybe a, you know, journalism Kool-Aid guy, but um, I really believe there is hope out there for it. And I'm hoping that when when things settle, and man, I hope they settle soon, um, but when they do, I hope that we'll be able to kind of reestablish the value, the public value of journalism and have that be supported by the public, given that they have maybe a new understanding of how important it is to have that information in a health crisis, in a political crisis, in an economic crisis, the information is more necessary than it has probably in any anyone alive in any of their lifetimes. 
Yeah, it, you know, to me, if there is um, some kind of maybe silver lining might not be the right word, but if there's some hope, is that I think the history shows that at, at any major innovation point in information sharing distribution, there's periods of pain and evolution. <laughs> and I think it's probably fair to say that we're in the midst of one, you know, right now. Um, right. And, you know, there was a recent article in The New Yorker from Jill Lepore who talked about even in the 60s with the impact of television, how newspapers underwent kind of a shift from a kind of transmission, this is what happened, to almost more of an interpretive model. And not so much like a news opinion model, but like, we're going to tell you what's important and why it's important. We're going to take all the this, this stuff coming at us and ignore some things and say, this is stuff that matters. And that would be why, mm-hmm. you know, newspaper reporting in the 60s and 70s would look different than newspaper reporting in the, you know, 20s and 30s. And I just wonder if maybe we're in, um, we're going through that kind of exercise. Maybe there's a point of innovation that we're in today. And I wondered if you had thoughts or perspective on, on how that evolution might be happening. Or, yeah. or maybe to ask it another way, you know, is, is our editorial decisions in the hands of Facebook now? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, I won't be able to sleep for days now. Uh, no, the, the, it, it's a great question. And I, and I think, you know, I, I truly take a little bit of comfort in thinking about the piece um, um, that you mentioned from Jill Lepore um, in the idea that media goes through cycles always. You know, there there are moments, I mean, you know, look at yellow journalism, look at, you know, you know tabloid sensationalism, you know, and, and then they bounce back from that. And, you know, uh, radio being, you know, kind of displaced by television and, you know, radio stays on, it's still going. You know, it, it goes through cycles. Uh, and I think we're going through another one of those. This just seems very severe. It seems very, it, I mean, it doesn't seem, it is severe and it is quick. <laughs> The, the the rapid rate at which things have changed are are just wild. I have trouble explaining it to my students very often. You know that just how different it is getting news. I was talking the other day in my class about newspapers and how there was this ritualistic, and there still is in many households. That's one of the things that's keeping newspapers even alive uh, in, in terms of print. But it was a ritual on Sunday morning to sit down and read the paper as a family. In the evening, you know, dad would read the paper and there was like this handoff of him handing the print paper over to me. I got it next, you know, and that was how it was. And they're baffled by that. They're totally baffled by it. And so, um, you know, one of the things that I, I try to explain to them is that it's different. But the thing is, is like, I'm not, I might feel like it some days, but I'm not like 95 years old. This wasn't all that long ago, right? So, so this change that has occurred has happened so fast, we cannot process it as humans. So, you know, to kind of come back to your question, though, the speed at which information is being thrown at us, and you and I have talked about this before, the, the, the hook, what, what, what people are drawn to is this idea of why does this matter to me? Why should I care? And so when news in the 60s, you know, transitioned to kind of this, this um, you know, more interpretive sort of thing, I think that's what they were trying to do then when things were speeding up and saying, you know, well, here's the story, but here's why it matters to you. You know, because that's when you saw the birth of like, you know, uh, consumer journalism and, you know, you know, you had your Ralph Nader and, you know, all those sort of things kind of popped up then. So it was about very much about a personal application. Facebook has great control now because it is a news feed that isn't like 
tuning into a cable news network. I mean, some days it is. But, it, but, but the, the thing is, you have immense control of that. It isn't just opening a newspaper. You're getting information either amplified or distinguished, if you will, by an algorithm, by your crazy uncle, um, by your annoying friend from high school, whatever it may be, the people that control the information you see, if all you're looking at is Facebook, that is a that is a mess. <laughs> it, <laughs> yes. you know, news and information was never meant to to operate that way, and so it's you know Facebook is an amplifier, but in so many ways it amplifies the wrong thing, and the algorithm, it all needs work, and it all bothers me. Um, <laughs> And we don't have enough podcast time to divulge that all together at once. But the point is, is something I really want. I really want people to pay attention where they see a story first, because if you see a story first on Facebook, a lot of times it masks where that story is from. And people don't look, they look at the headline like they do everywhere. But Facebook is a different beast because it's being delivered to them by many different actors and many different factors in play. That's a good point. I, I mean, I think it's easy to vilify Facebook, and I think they deserve it. But I do think there's, you know, different levels of w work going on with, with the algorithm, for sure. And, and I'm, you know, there's definitely pressure against them to do better. And I think they're trying, and I don't know if it, it will work or not. I mean, ultimately, they are, their business model is shares and attention. And mm -hmm. it's such a temptation to play into the worst parts of our information consuming habits and identity politics right like the, the the kind of bad side and you know they benefit when we get in those nasty arguments or or maybe they don't if enough people turn off i know so many people that are just checking out of facebook that you know they maybe that's a red flag um for them so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um let let me ask you know there's a lot of conversations in libraries about reporting and about media about media education and I thought it might be interesting to start to ask you, you know, if you were hired as a consultant, so for those librarians out there that want to hire you, contact us, we'll get you Jeremy's information. But, you know, if, if you were going to be hired to design a media literacy curriculum within a library, um, how would you start? What are the things that you would think about? It's a great question. And uh, there's so much to be done because, thing, A, things are changing so rapidly and, B, the stakes are so high. One thing that I would do right away and that I would advise right away is to take a trip back in time. And I don't want to sound too campy about journalism here, but to go back in time and really look at the origins of journalism in relation to democracy. Really get to know that First Amendment. You know, really talk about the notion of a free press and its functionality. We have forgotten that completely right the the journalism and journalists are not meant to be cheerleaders for any politician they are not meant to you know elevate them and you know there's this there's this notion now where if you are a journalist and you report something negative about a particular uh, politician suddenly you are an enemy suddenly you know what what equates if it's bad press bad press is now bad person bad press is now that that journalist is bad that that journalist is unfair people forget that journalists are the people you know they're they're on the people's team i hate to <laughs> do it in this 
you know, kind of divisive way, but that's what it is. They're on the people's team. Historically, you know, journalists have held, you know, hold truth to power, right? Question authority, you know, checks and balances on the government, the fourth estate, all that good stuff, right? Um, I, you know, I'm sure you've been in the. I, I always think about if I if I had a multi, I'm sorry, a media literacy class, and I could say, let's take a field trip. I would take them to the lobby of the Tribune Tower in Chicago, right? And there's quotes etched in the walls in there from Abe Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson, and it's just all about journalism and all about democracy. And I make them read every one of them and say, this is how it was when this country began. And there's a lot of things about the start of our country that people are saying, well, that doesn't quite work anymore, but those still do. And I think that's where I would begin and kind of go back in time and just think about what's the original purpose. Because now I think when people see journalism and media or the media with air quotes, I'm holding up air quotes here, they view it as such a different beast. They view it as such a different it's a, they view it as a monster. Well, it, they it, really do. It's a, and your point you know, kind of speaks to that identity, right? Like the teams aren't right versus left with their media serving them, right? The teams are voters that need information, keeping mm-hmm. people that run government honest, right? That should be the teams. <laughs> and, exactly. and the other institutions, such as libraries, that that uphold the values of actually sharing quality information so that voters can make good decisions, right? Yeah. If your house is on fire and you call the fire department and the first guy that runs up to your house with a hose, you happen to know he's a Democrat, are you going to tell him to go away because you're a Republican? (laughs) Right. No. No. Right? The house, the information house is on fire right now. And so we should be looking at journalists as those who can provide that vital information. I'll say it again. They are not without flaws. It is not a perfect system, but the whole... The whole concept of journalism as part of a democracy has been, I don't want to say destroyed because I, I want to have the hope there, but it's been deeply wounded um, and, and and it's kind of become detached. And this idea, enemy of the people, um, you know, uh, you know, Glenn Beck the other day, enemy of mankind. Really? You know, <laughs> we don't make enough money to take on mankind, Glenn. <laughs> Um, you know, so, you know, we got to have a talk with Glenn, right. but, 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 you know, the, but the truth is, is that, you know, in, in all seriousness, it, it can't, it just doesn't work that way. Our country, it, it wasn't set up to work that way. And we forget that journalism in this country is, is quite unique, right? It's, it's a job that's, that's kind of built into the constitution. Um, and, and few, what, what other countries have that, that aren't, you know, state run media, Right. Or you know, run by me, have their media run by the state. Um, we've forgotten that. We've gotten away from it, and I think there's some fault to be spread all the way around. But it's just been this constant barrage in the last few years that has kind of made that even more distant. I think that's true. So just to stay with our media curriculum kind of yeah. line of thought, um, you know, with, with your students taking classes, um, how many of them do you expect to go out and actually be working journalists? And how many of them do you, th- do you think will end up in other places? And, you know, what are those skills? So if they end up in other places, what skills do you hope they take away from your class? I think that would be uh, something mm-hmm. that we librarians could also learn from as we're working with patrons and, and helping them understand, um, you know, media literacy for sure. I ask my students at the beginning of every semester, I say, why are you here? And I get a, I get a wide range of answers. Some of them say, I want to be a journalist. And I say, cool. 
And then I get the other end that says, I don't really know. I kind of thought I'd check it out. And I'm fine with every one of those because I think that journalism as a practice uh, can teach students who are interested in anything very valuable skills, right? There's the research skills, which I know, you know, library, again, huge part of that, of course. Um, There's the research skills. There's the writing skills, the communication skills. But there's also a tenacity for information that, I'm trying desperately to teach into my students, and eventually I think they get it. I hope they do. But it is a tenacity to seek information, to seek answers, talk to strangers, you know, ask for help. Um, I think that I think that by pushing students to go out, and it's amazing how hard it is to get a student to make a phone call. Everything wants to be an email or a DM or and. But I love it when they make a call and they was like, that was so easy. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> it is right, easy. Right. Oh, you yeah. can do that. But 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 I, I think that's good to know for librarians because and, and I don't think I don't think this is news to any librarian out there working with students or really anyone is that there are there is almost this kind of shyness or, um, you know, uh, uh, adversity to picking up a phone and calling someone or in a library context, walking up to the reference desk and saying, hey, I need help, or can you tell me, even though I'll tell my students all the time, I know those librarians, they're waiting for you. They love it. Give them something to do. That's, That's right. why they're there. That's what we do. You know? Seven days a week, we're yeah. waiting. Just ask. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so and, and, and I think the same holds true for journalism, too. You know, there's, there's people eager to talk to students, and, and they just have to ask. So I think for 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 the purposes of, of librarians, it's sort of understanding that there's this hesitant, hesitancy among students. And I, I think that what I would encourage, you know, is, is for librarians to really push home the idea of news being a destination for anyone doing any kind of research. And because I, I tell my students, going back to your question, you know, you're going to be able to be a better researcher. If you finish this class and you're like, journalism, man, that's sure Matt guy, quack, I'm done with journalism. <laughs> you're going to be a better researcher in your psychology class. You're going to be a better researcher, in, you know, in your, in your biology class, whatever it is. You're going to be able to talk to people a little bit easier. It's all those sorts of things, I think, that play into it. We want our students, I think, you know, we hold the same goals with librarians and that we want our students to be critical thinkers, good researchers, communicators. Uh, that, that's, that's really what it comes down to. You know, as journalism is going through whatever transformation that it's going through um, and, you know, the, these kind of growing pains, I mean, I do think that in some ways the discipline of journalism as an academic discipline should be, you know, more alive than ever because, you know, a lot of those old barriers to communicate with the public are torn down and the skills of, um, you know, really being rigorous and looking at evidence and um, working on a source and writing effectively and communicating a message. Like, what's the lead of a message? Like those, right, those are things that I think all of us are doing in some way or another. Some of us aren't maybe doing them very well, but, you know, those are skills that anyone who's working for an organization, for a company where you're directly posting things online um, to me, those are things that that you can keep in your back pocket. So maybe you're not a journalism major, but having a couple classes in journalism seem to be a nice skill set that you could bring as you know to whatever employment you take. You know, when I think about our students, for sure. So, and I think the other challenge, just I just want to add something to here that 
you know, thinking about the media literacy curriculum, kind of going back to that. And the big challenge now is I think students are blurring the line between social media and journalism and sensationalism and journalism. I'm having a tough time. Uh, I think I'm breaking through, but it's taking a lot of effort, which I never mind because I love doing it. But students who see something on social media, they think that is journalism. For example, when I ask students, where do you get your news, I rarely have a student say, I have a news app, or I have the New York Times app, or I have the, you know, the CBS LA app, or whatever it may be. I don't have students who say, I go to the NewYorkTimes.com every day. The answer I get is Instagram, or Facebook, or Twitter. And it's convenient. I understand. I look at news on Twitter all day long. Um, but... There, there just there doesn't seem to be a recognition that behind those posts, there are actors. Some of them are very good actors that have very high ethics, and some of them are very bad actors. Some of them are bots. Right. And so that's where there's this kind of danger: is what is what's the the middleman, so to speak, here, um, is something that isn't tremendously regulated. So there's, there's got to be an understanding of the process. Everything you see on that Instagram feed, if it's from a reliable news source has been vetted and reported and, you know, so on and so forth. So that, that's kind of been a challenge as more students become more dependent on these, these platforms for news. Right. And all of us. And, 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 the, the, and, right, and the core skill is that you're the filter, right? Like that, like that, yep. that platform may make look every, everything may look the same, but it's on yep. your shoulders to interpret what that means and to make decisions. It, yeah, as far as we've come, Web 2.0 and and all this and, and our ability to put ourselves, our names and lights, if you will, on on the web, there still is this belief, I think, that is more it's more prevalent than I am imagine. I'm always surprised by it that you know, the, the old joke is if it's on the internet it must be true. But there's always there is a tinge of truth to that statement that, that there is I, oh I saw it online. Yeah. Where'd you hear that? What is that? I saw it online. <laughs> right. That that can't be the answer. I want to know where you saw it online. I don't want to know when you saw it online. I want to know who. I want to know all about that because it all matters today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jeremy, let me say I am uh, super excited for your success and your journey um, through you know your doctorate and, and your teaching. Now, I do miss seeing you every day at work, like we when we worked together um, over a decade now, probably. Um, Man, I know, right? But um, if our listeners wanted to find you, how could they? How can they find you? So uh best way to find me is probably on Twitter. It's uh Twitter, it's at Jeremy Shermack, uh J-E-R-E-M-Y S-H-E-R-M-A-K. Uh and you can also find me uh I'm at Orange Coast College, as Troy mentioned in the outset, uh at uh, uh in uh, Costa Mesa, California. And I'm the faculty advisor actually for Coast Report, which is our um student news outlet there. Uh you can find us, I'll do a shameless plug for my students here, uh coastreportonline.com. Uh, they're really doing some great reporting um, about COVID, uh, its impact on our college. Um, very proud of them. So check that out as well. Okay. Jeremy, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Anytime, Troy. Circulating Ideas is produced in the suburbs of Atlanta. Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place of work or the place of work of guests. For past interviews, visit circulatingideas.com and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice and help others find the show by leaving a rating or a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at Cirque Ideas or like the show's Facebook page. 
Theme music is by Pamela Klicka, and the logo is by Shandy Fry. Thanks for listening, and keep circulating your ideas. <laughs>